right, take your copy of the Scriptures, open to Luke 10. We've read the passage, Luke 10, 25 to 37, parable of the Good Samaritan. As we begin this morning, I think it's fitting for us to begin with a reminder from our friend James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor, great theologian, Bible commentator. He talks about parables like this. He says, a parable is a story from real life or a real life situation from which a moral or spiritual truth is drawn. A parable is not a fable, and a parable is not a made-up imaginary sort of impossible story. A parable is not sort of like a science fiction type thing, but it's just an ordinary, real-life, everyday kind of thing that Jesus would use to then make a moral or a spiritual point. The New Testament has dozens and dozens of parables from Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One of the interesting things about the Gospel of Luke is that Luke contains a number of parables that you don't find in Matthew or in Mark. Only Luke contains the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That's Luke 16. We're going to talk about that passage next week. Only Luke contains the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons. That's Luke chapter 15. Some people say it's the greatest of all of the parables that Jesus taught. Only Luke contains the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable that we're looking at this morning in Luke chapter 10. I want you to think about the immediate context of this parable. And I know that this morning we're not reading all of Luke 9 and Luke 10, but I just want to lay this in front of you. I think it's helpful for understanding this parable. The immediate context of Luke 10 focuses on questions of discipleship. And the specific question being wrestled with in Luke 9 and 10, and I've given you a lot of verses, we're not going to read them. The question is, what does it look like to follow Jesus? How does a person follow Jesus? Now, you understand that for the very first disciples, for the 12 apostles, what it looked like to follow Jesus was literally to follow Jesus. If he went up to Galilee, you went up to Galilee. If he went down to Judea, you went down to Judea. It was pretty easy. Wherever he went, you went. You just watched and you listened and you paid attention and you literally followed him around. But Jesus knew that a day was coming when he would be crucified, he would be buried, he would be raised from the dead, and then he would ascend back to the throne of heaven. When that happened, and you could no longer literally follow Jesus around Palestine, then what does it look like to follow Jesus? So you can look at the verses I've given you on your own. Some of what it looks like is to go out and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. It means confessing that Jesus is the Christ. It means taking up your cross and dying to yourself so that you can follow Jesus. It means being a servant and rather than putting yourself first, making yourself last. It means making Jesus the center of your life. And it means rejoicing, not that God is using you in some special way, but rejoicing that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. 
So all these things in Luke 9 and 10 that contribute to this idea, what does it look like to follow Jesus when you can't physically follow him around the Middle East, this parable contributes to that question. It's a question of discipleship. Now, one more thing I want to note before we jump in. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include the same two-part summary of the Old Testament law. So sometimes when you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this summary comes directly from Jesus. Someone asks him, what's the greatest commandment? And he'll quote Deuteronomy 6, and then he'll quote Leviticus 19. In this passage in Luke, it's not Jesus giving that answer. It's the law you're giving that answer. And Jesus says, you have given the right answer. That is correct. So all the Gospels agree. The whole Old Testament law can be summarized with these two verses. Deuteronomy 6, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commands, Jesus would say, hangs all of the Old Testament law. So that brings us to the big idea. Very simple, very straightforward. Being a disciple of Jesus involves loving God and loving others. And you've got to fill those two blanks in, in that order. You don't say, we love others and we love God, but you've got to say, we love God and we love others. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, loving God first and letting that love for God translate into love for other people. Now, this particular parable gets used all the time to make a bunch of points that are not central to the parable. This is why you've got to nail that big idea down. People will use this parable to take pot shots at pastors and priests and Levites and religious leaders. Now here's the thing. Jesus told some parables that took shots at those kind of people. That's not the point of this parable. Some people will use this parable to emphasize and to make a point about racial reconciliation. You know what? The Bible has something to say about racial reconciliation and how we interact with each other, but that's not the main point of this parable. A lot of people use this parable to make people feel guilty that the last time you drove down 42nd Street and stopped at a red light, you didn't give five bucks to the guy who was standing on the corner. You know what? Jesus says some things about how you ought to help people and how you ought to not help people. The Bible has lots of advice about that, but that's not the main point here. The main point when you read this parable in context deals with discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? It looks like loving God and loving others. Now, once we get to this parable, you'll find that it's a, a story within a story. And that the whole thing holds together with a number of questions. There are four questions in this passage that provide the structure to what we've just read. There are two questions asked by the lawyer to Jesus. And there are two questions asked by Jesus to the lawyer. Four questions total. So I just want you to start off thinking about the ways we use questions to communicate with each other. Sometimes we use questions because we lack information and we want 
information. So I look around the room, most of you I know, some of you I don't know, but maybe I would ask you questions if we're trying to get to know each other like, hey, where did you go to high school or where do you work? Those are just questions seeking information. I don't know the answer. I would like to know the answer, so I'm asking you for information. Sometimes we use questions in that way. Advertisers today use questions to make you think and remember their product. Examples. What would you do for a Klondike bar? That's a question. And it's supposed to get stuck in your head and roll around. Like how many of you remember the commercials? Pardon me, but do you have any gray poupon? Forgive me for not using the accent. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Or the one that ran for years and years and years, Got Milk? Somebody with a milk mustache? Okay, those are all questions. They're not really seeking information. It's just an advertising trick to get something stuck in your head so that you think about a product, you remember a product. It's another way that we use questions. Here's another way we use questions. Sometimes we use questions to make a point. For example, I might say to my kids, you're not going to leave those dishes on the table, are you? And if you're a parent, you understand that is not a question. That is actually a command with a question mark at the end of it. And I can translate that. It means get back here and pick your dishes up and take them to the sink. And while you're there, wash the dishes and then dry them and put them away. It's not a question, but it's a question used to communicate. Do you know who used questions better than anybody? Jewish rabbis. So some of you like dad jokes. Some of you don't like dad jokes. Here's a 2,000-year-old Jewish dad joke. You ready? Why do rabbis always answer a question with a question? Why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question? Jewish rabbis did this all the time. Somebody would come to them with a question, and rather than give the answer, Jesus did this all the time, rather than just give somebody the simple, direct answer, he would respond with a question. You understand that when Jesus responds with a question, he's not seeking information. He's usually trying to get somebody to think. He's usually trying to challenge some assumption that they've held on to. And that's what's happening in this passage. This passage is a story within a story. The inside story is the parable that Jesus tells about the hero that we know is the Good Samaritan. That's the inside story. But the outside story is a conversation between Jesus and a lawyer. And that conversation between Jesus and the lawyer is just questions, back and forth questions. And if you can understand the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer, the outside story, I think you're better equipped to make, make sense of the inside story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we'll start with this. What do we learn from the lawyer's questions? We'll start with the lawyer. Several things we learn. Number one, you look at the lawyer's questions, we learn that he wanted to test Jesus and justify himself. He was not seeking information. He's not trying to learn. He wants to put Jesus to the test 
and he wants to justify himself. So if your copy of the scriptures is open, you can see the first question he asks is in verse 25. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The second question is down in verse 29. He says, and who is my neighbor? But each of those questions comes with a note of explanation about his motive. Verse 25, he stood up to put Jesus to the test. He wants to test the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 29, he wants to justify himself. You need to understand, and I need to understand, that that is completely backwards to the way things ought to be between us and Jesus Christ. That is entirely upside down to the way that things work in Jesus' world. You and I are not to put Jesus to the test, and you and I do not have the ability, we dare not try to justify ourselves. But that's what he does. He wants to test Jesus and justify himself. And as he's trying to do those two things, he wants to play around with the scriptures. He wants to play around with God's word. I want you to understand that the apostle Paul warned his protege Timothy about people just like this. Look what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. He said to Timothy, Timothy, charge them... His church, the church in Ephesus, charged them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness." I can tell you as a pastor, Paul wrote this to a pastor. Nothing encourages a pastor more than when people come with honest questions to learn and to grow in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredibly encouraging. And nothing irritates a pastor more than when somebody comes with irreverent babble. Seeking to put God to the test. Seeking to justify themselves. And in doing those two things, playing around with the Word of God. That's what this man came to do. To put Jesus to the test and to justify himself. Here's the second thing we learn from the lawyer's questions. He assumed he could do something to inherit eternal life. He assumed that there was something he could do that would lead to him inheriting eternal life. Verse 25, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's almost word for word the same question that the rich young ruler asked Jesus. You'll read about it when you get to Luke 17. He came to Jesus and he said, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life. It doesn't take much for our inner Pharisee to come out. 
Because we are sinful people and we're born with a sinful nature, we are born with this idea in our minds and our hearts that there is something we can do to merit or earn or deserve eternal life. We are all prone to ask this question. People who study the parable of the Good Samaritan, by default, they almost always end up asking this question. So what do I need to do? What good thing do I need to do if I want to inherit eternal life? The Bible is clear that there is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. There is nothing you can do to earn your way with God. There is nothing you can do to merit salvation. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 2. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot be justified through works of the law, something that you do. You can be justified through putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His life of obedience, His substitutionary sacrificial death, His resurrection from the dead, His promise to come back for His people. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved, you can be justified. But if you rely on something that you can do, you'll never be justified before God. Makes you think of John F. Kennedy who famously quipped at his inauguration, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It might be good political rhetoric. Applied to God, it's bad spiritual advice. Don't ask what you can do for God. But ask what God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has done for you. This man assumes that there is something that he can do to inherit eternal life. Thirdly, what do we learn from the lawyer's questions? We see that he tried to limit the scope of God's commands. Look at his question in verse 29. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He's not looking for information. He's not looking for an answer. He's not looking for Jesus to say, well, it's the people who live on your left and your right and maybe the person that lives across the street. He's not looking for Jesus to say, okay, we'll include the people who are catty corner too. What about my alley neighbor? Okay, include them too. What about my whole block? Well, maybe the whole block. What about my neighborhood or my zip code? He's not looking for any of those answers. What he's looking to do is justify himself, and the way that he's going to try to justify himself is limiting the scope of God's Word. He wants to narrow down who he has to show love to, who he has to be a neighbor to. He's trying to limit the scope of God's commands. Lastly, directly related, this man didn't like the parable of the good Samaritan. And I'm asking you to write in the word Samaritan because it's the word that he refused to say. At the end, verse 36, Jesus says, here's a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 
you got three choices. Is it the priest? Is it the Levite? Or is it the Samaritan? Those are the answers. He opts for option four, D. Because he doesn't even want to say the word Samaritan. So he sort of mutters and grumbles under his breath, the one who showed mercy. I'm not going to say Samaritan. He's just like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal has run away from home and he's finally come back and the father's throwing a big party, his brother has come home, but he won't call him his brother. He won't say it. He looks at his dad and he says, your son is home. This son of yours has returned, but he won't say, my brother has come home. This man doesn't like the story. He understands that Jesus is using questions and he's using a parable about a Samaritan to challenge his spiritual beliefs. And he does not like the answer from Jesus. He doesn't like the line of questioning from Jesus. So he just mutters this, the one who showed mercy. So that's the lawyer. Let's flip the script. Let's talk about Jesus and the questions that he asks to this lawyer. What do we learn from Jesus' response to the lawyer? Number one, we learn that God's law is the ultimate standard of righteousness. The law of God is the ultimate standard for human righteousness. Look at verse 25 and 26. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, he answers with a question, very rabbinical, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Points him to the law of God. And to his credit, the lawyer gives the right answer. He says the exact same thing that Jesus said when Jesus was put in this position. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. Well... Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he quotes Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And look what Jesus says to him. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. That's the right answer. And then if you keep reading, he says, verse 29, to justify himself, who is my neighbor? He got the answer right intellectually, but it completely bypassed his heart. We talked about this during our combined Sunday school this morning. We talked about the Word of God. We talked about the danger for us as Christian people to believe all the right things about the Bible, but not to actually read and study and think about the Bible. You can get the right answer intellectually and you can miss it in your heart. This guy gives the right answer. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. And then he seamlessly moves into an attempt to justify himself before God. You know what he should have done? When Jesus said to him, 
What is written in the law? How do you read it? He should have said exactly what he said. He should have quoted Deuteronomy 6, love God. He should have quoted Leviticus 19, love your neighbor. It's exactly right up to that point. And then he should have looked at Jesus and he, he should have said, Jesus, there's a problem. I haven't done that. That's the bar I've fallen short. And Jesus, here's another problem. I don't think I can ever make it over that bar. I don't think I have it in me to love God with all that I am. And I don't think I have it in me to love my neighbor as myself. And all I can do is pray that God would be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the full right answer. And he gets the first part right. He quotes the right verses. But those verses completely bypass his heart. Jesus wants him to see his sinfulness. He wants him to feel conviction and brokenness. He wants him to despair over his ability to save himself. All the man wants to do is argue. God's law is the ultimate standard of righteousness. Secondly, what do we learn from Jesus' response? Love for God must come before everything else. Love for God must come first. When Jesus confirms his answer, and every time that people ask Jesus this question, Deuteronomy 6 always is recognized as the greatest commandment, and Leviticus 19 is always recognized as the second greatest. That's the order. Never does it flip. There's a reason that when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first table of God's law deals with how we worship God, how we love God. And the second table of God's law deals with how we relate to other people. The order is important. First you love God, then you love other people. If you flip that, there's consequences. There's consequences. If a pastor flips those two and makes love for others more important than love for God, he will lead his church to do anything and everything to reach people, to help people, even if it doesn't honor God. And if a church gets those things mixed up, and a church begins to think that it's more important to love other people than it is to love God, that church will try to produce really nice folks, and in the end, those nice folks won't even know God. And for you as a person, if you get those flipped up, if you give more emphasis and attention and concern to loving other people than you do to loving God, in the end, you will elevate the creation over the creator. The order that Jesus affirms is first, love God. Second, love other people. Love for God always comes first. Here's a third lesson from Jesus' response. Love for God must translate to love for others. This is where we come to the parable. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a dangerous road. 
Some people in history called it the bloody way. It was about a 20-mile journey. It was about half a mile drop in elevation from Jerusalem, which sat high, to Jericho, which sat very low relative to sea level. There were no highway patrol. There was no Jerusalem police department. There was no protection on this road. You were just out there on your own. And so when Jesus tells a story and he says a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he got mugged, heads would have been nodding. Everyone would have said, oh, I've been on that road. It would be like me saying to you, a man left a manual and drove across to the west side of town and he almost got run off the road. You'd say, I believe it. I've made that drive. It's dangerous. A man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. He got mugged on the way. Everyone says, I'm with you. I believe it. They were surprised when a priest and a Levite both passed by without helping. They were especially surprised when Jesus made the hero of the story a Samaritan. The logical progression for Jesus' Jewish audience would have been priest, Levite, Jewish layman. Someone who's not clergy is going to swoop in to save the day. Jesus bypasses the Jewish layman, the non-clergy Jew, and he jumps all the way to a Samaritan. And he says the Samaritan is the one who stopped to help. And he picks a Samaritan to get their attention. Who are the Samaritans? It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to the division from the the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. After the reign of Solomon, Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel just plunged immediately into idolatry. The northern kingdom of Israel was the first of the two to be sent into exile. The nation of Assyria came and they conquered the northern kingdom and they hauled most of the people off and they left some riffraff to live in the land. And the riffraff who stayed behind intermarried with the Assyrians who moved into that part of the world. And the Jewish people sort of looked at them and said, you know, they're not Jewish anymore. They're just sort of this non-Jew, non-Gentile half-breed. And it wasn't just an ethnic issue that they had with these people. It was really a religious issue. Because not only did these people intermarry and their bloodlines mixed, but they took paganism, Assyrian paganism, and the Jewish sort of pagan uh, worship that was practiced in the northern kingdom, and they mixed them together, and they produced this new thing that wasn't at all like what God told his people to do in the Old Testament. They were just idolatrous pagan people. So much so that they said, we're not going to go worship in Jerusalem. We're going to keep our calf idols in Dan and Bethel. And we're going to build a new temple in Samaria. These were, in the minds of Jewish people, the bad guys. If Jesus was telling this parable to you, he might say, pastor went by. The deacon went by, and then came a member of Al-Qaeda. Then came an ISIS freedom fighter. Then came a Russian soldier to save the day. And he helped this man. 
and he cared for this man. When you read in commentaries, there is a lot of speculation, and it's all that it is, speculation, about why the priest and why the Levi passed by. I mean, people devote pages to this. Maybe it was ritual cleanliness. Maybe they were going on some sort of spiritual mission. Maybe they had somewhere to be, something to do. When we read this, Jesus gives no motive to the priest or the Levite. None. It's not the point of the parable. The priest passes, the Levite passes, Jesus doesn't tell us why, it's probably not our place to speculate why. But the Samaritan stops, and the Samaritan stopping is supposed to grab you by the spiritual shirt collars and get your attention and say, you are asking the wrong question. What's the question? Who's my neighbor? It's the wrong question. The right question is, how can you be a neighbor to someone else? Sometimes in life, if you ask the wrong question, you end up with the wrong answer. And this is Jesus grabbing you by the shirt collars, grabbing this lawyer by the spiritual shirt collars and saying, asking who your neighbor is is the wrong question entirely. Ask a different question. How can you be a neighbor to somebody who's in need? Listen to me. This parable is not intended to take cheap shots at religious people who are self-righteous and won't help others. There's other passages in the Bible that do that exact same thing. This is not one of them. The motive of these men is not told. It's not revealed to us. This parable is not in the Bible so that when you leave and you see someone standing on the corner and you don't put 20 bucks in their bucket, that you feel guilty about it. Maybe you should feel guilty about not helping people in need, but that's not the point of this particular parable. The point of this particular parable relates to discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means, number one, that you're going to love God, and number two, that you're going to love others. And it's not a question of if they're fit for your love. It's not a question about who you should love or who your neighbor is. It's a question about your heart. Who proved to be the neighbor here? And the answer was the Samaritan. The question for you is how can you be a neighbor to somebody else? You know, as a church, we try to do this. We try to help people who have legitimate needs. We do it in Kenya through Nourishing the Nations, Chris and Lisa Harrington. Chris, our missions pastor, and Lisa, they lead us in that ministry. We're a, a participant in that. We try to help people. We do it here locally through our partnership and our funding and our support of the Permian Basin Mission Center. There's lots of things that we do as a church to try to be neighborly to other people. Can I just tell you that sometimes when we ask this question of ourselves, how can we be a neighbor to somebody else? Sometimes our minds get too big. We start thinking, how can we feed all the hungry kids in Kenya? How can we feed all the hungry people in Odessa? Both good questions to ask. But maybe for some of us, we just ought to dial it back and say, how could I love the people at my church? How could I show kindness to them? 
Who do I need to forgive in my church? may not be worthy of your forgiveness, but it would be awful neighborly of you to forgive them. Maybe we just need to think as simple as the fruit of the Spirit. How can we live together lives that are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Yes, there's some big questions that we ought to ask when it comes to being a neighbor. There's some legitimate needs that we ought to try to address when it comes to being a neighbor. But it's not just these big dramatic displays of helping the poor that fall under this category of loving other people. Kindness, forgiveness, service, care, living the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. One last point, can't end without this one. Jesus is the true neighbor who left heaven and he gave his life that we might be saved from sin and death. So this parable and this conversation serves a purpose to explain discipleship, what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to love God, what it looks like to love others. But this is a powerful parable because there is a gospel shape to the story that Jesus puts into the middle of this conversation. The story within a story has a gospel shape to it. And I just want you to understand what Jesus is describing here and how the ultimate fulfillment took place in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. The man in this parable was left half dead on the side of the road. You understand that the Bible says that left to yourself, you are spiritually dead. Not spiritually half dead, spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. You understand that this priest and this Levite crossed the road to avoid this man and the Samaritan crossed the road to help this man But you understand in a far greater reality, the Lord Jesus Christ left the throne of heaven. He didn't just cross the road. He crossed the universe to be born as a baby to help sinners. You understand that this Samaritan was willing to give of his own time and his own money to give life to somebody who was in danger But you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to give his life. To lay down his life for sinners. So that those of us who are spiritually dead might know spiritual life. Be very careful with this parable. The lawyer came to Jesus and he asked a question. What should I do? to inherit eternal life. And if you walk away from this parable asking the question, man, I got to be a better neighbor if I want to go to heaven. What do I need to do? You have looped all the way back to the beginning and you're right where the lawyer started. Focusing on what you can do to earn your way with God. When the real question is, what has the Lord Jesus Christ done to earn our relationship with the Father. Let's pray together.